There are people who um, are very into numbers in the Bible. You can have books of biblical numerology. And um, I don't have one, but I understand that they exist. And um, we know on, a, on a, a lower plane, if you like, without going into all the, uh, the complicated uh, theories about different numbers, we know that uh, the number three is important. We know that the number seven is important. We know that 12 is a, a big number in the Bible. But I want to say uh, this evening that uh, the most important number in the Bible is number one. We're to be people of one thing. And you find that echo right through scripture. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There are not many gods, there is one God. And that's picked up by Paul writing to Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And um, the psalmist, Psalm 27, it's uh, David. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. If you were pedantic, you would say there are three things there. Uh, one thing I've asked, but it consists of these three, if you like, subsections. And it may be that Paul has that uh, in mind when he writes to the Philippians, one thing I do. And uh, the one thing for him is being taken up with Jesus. To be identified with him in his death and resurrection. To enter into everything that Jesus has done and has planned for him. And the question I just want to ask uh, of Paul uh, tonight, looking at uh, this chapter, Philippians 3, is why just one thing? One thing I do, he says. And I think it's firstly because it keeps us pointing in the right direction if we just have one thing. He said, doesn't he, in verse uh, 12, I press on and then in verse 14 I press on he's forgetting what lies behind verse 13 and straining forward to what lies ahead it's easy sometimes to feel that the Christian's life is cyclical um, we have cyclical seasons don't we a certain time of year, it's summer, it's going to be hot. And then autumn comes around, there'll be Christmas in December and things go round and round like that. And there are certain things, I suppose, in the way of trends and fashions that come round every couple of decades. It can happen in church life as well. But the Bible says, no, the story of the Christian, the life of the Christian isn't cyclical, it's linear. It's going from one point to another point, from A to B, the start to the end. And Paul is resolutely facing towards the finish 
line, the end. He's leaving the past behind. He has already, hasn't he, in chapter 3, renounced any confidence in his past achievements. And if there's anyone amongst all the rabbis, even the eminent rabbis who had claimed to be um, the, the highest and the best of all uh, amongst the uh, learned ones of the Jewish faith, it was the Apostle Paul. His pedigree was uh, outstanding. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He's sort of working up in, in levels of, of specialness, if you like, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. So for Paul and for those reasons, there's no looking back. He has turned away from those things and he has turned to face Christ and to face the calling that God has given to him in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's facing his destiny, facing his future. We're inclined, I think, although we're not the Apostle Paul and we may not have such a background as his, we're inclined for different reason, perhaps, to, to look back. I think we're more inclined to look back with regret or bitterness. Maybe to look back with disappointment. Uh, we look at our failures, we look at our sins. When I was, uh, I think, 19, I actually had a, a folder at home and I wrote with, it with a, a felt tip, what might have been. <laughs> Isn't that sad? What might have been. I had academic ambitions that weren't uh, realized. And I kept that folder for a long time and maybe mentally at least you have a folder, what might have been. Paul though is putting all that behind him and we need to have and we can have by God's strength and by God's grace, by his spirit. We can have that mental capacity, that mental resolve and we need to exercise it every day, that mental discipline to say I'm putting those things behind me, they are behind me. Even the world psychologically knows the value of that. Draw a line under it, move on. My father-in-law used to say, kick it into touch. Everything was a sporting analogy for him. But for the Apostle Paul, obsessed with Jesus, looking to his coming. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a saviour the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And then secondly, why just one thing? Because everything that pleases God is subsumed in this. Paul isn't saying I do one thing only, so it's only Jesus, and you can forget 
the commandments of God. You can forget the church. You can forget the Bible, forget doctrine. For me, it's Jesus only, so we can all just relax. He's not saying that. It would be to contradict the whole of Scripture if he did. But he's saying, to quote the, uh, a line from another hymn, which I could have chosen, love will make obedience sweet. So he's gathering every part of the Christian life under this one thing. It's the alchemy by which everything, even drudgery, everything is transmuted into gold, that which pleases God. If it's done with an eye to Jesus, to please him, and out of love for him. And that's a challenge that uh, one of the prophets poses to God's people. I forget where exactly it comes, but looking at their religious observance and their life. And God says through the prophet, when you did all that, when you attended your prayer meetings, when you attended public worship, when you did this, when you did that, was it really for me that you did that? Singler Ferguson um, says, Paul did one thing in a hundred different ways. We know how many things Paul did from the book of Acts, don't we? And the scrapes he found himself in and the churches that he founded and the books that he wrote, his imprisonments and so on. Paul did one thing in a hundred different ways. Everything was for Jesus. He was looking ahead. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, didn't he? There's one thing that you lack. The rich young ruler felt that he hadn't sinned outwardly. He was relatively blameless. He, he kept uh, the law. One thing you lack. Jesus is not more important to you than your possessions. You're not prepared to make that step of sacrifice and commitment. Thirdly, why one thing? Because it freed Paul, it frees us from impossible burdens. This was the life of the, the Pharisee, wasn't it? Well, it's more accurate to say they put impossible burdens on other people uh, rather than on themselves. And hundreds of regulations were added to the original uh, law of God. And in every tiny, tiny detail, things had to be right. I don't know if you remember the kind of entertainment on TV. Um, it probably dates me a bit. Um, maybe it was a magic show or some kind of entertainment where there were, I don't know, 10 or a dozen perhaps poles uh, secured to the floor of the studio. And uh, he would set a plate spinning on one by one until there were 12 or so poles and he was dashing around from one to the next making sure the plates were kept spinning. And if we're not careful, we may find ourselves drawn into that kind of piety, that kind of Christian life, that trap 
where we fall into justifying ourselves by our busyness and our desire to impress other people. There was a line in the hymn that we sung at the beginning, wasn't there? Um, that we could sit at the master's feet with Mary. And that's, um, that incident is found at the end of Luke chapter 10. Uh, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. I'm married to uh, a Martha. And um, I remember, well, it's happened a few times. If I've met Jill at an airport, uh, she's coming back from Newcastle usually, or maybe at a train station. And you know how if you're waiting for somebody, a crowd of people will have disembarked from the plane or the train, and you're there waiting, and you're just faced with a whole sea of faces, aren't you? And um, you have to focus ever so carefully to make sure that you don't miss the one that you love, the one that, that that's the whole reason for you being there. And uh, the sea of faces pass. Sometimes there's a distraction, um, somebody unusual perhaps, uh, somebody with a load of suitcases, uh, somebody chattering away on their phone, but still you can't afford to be distracted by them. You have to focus, focus, focus relentlessly, otherwise you'll miss the one that you're waiting for. And sometimes the Christian just has to be absolutely obsessed with the one thing, the one person, Jesus. Even if at times it may cause upset or difficulty or embarrassment, of course, Jesus loved Martha as much as he loved uh, Mary and Lazarus. But we need to be really careful that we don't seek to be doing many things and become like the Pharisees. Paul is glad to have all that behind him. And he has come to one who said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Very easy to miss what it's all about or who it's all for. That was certainly true in my um, theological training. It can be true in the ministry. It can be true of any believer. We forget who it's all for. And then lastly, uh, why just the one thing? Because it's the very thing that God is doing. It converges with the Father's intention and the Son's own goal in saving us. When we are obsessed with Jesus, we are perfectly aligned with the Father's will and purpose 
for us. Paul seems to uh, understand that there would be some who weren't sure about what he was saying. He says in verse 15 that those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. How radical Paul is being. Completely turning his back on all works uh, religion and saying there is now one thing that I do. In chapter 2 um, and verses 12 to 13, you have this convergence again. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's a salvation that's accomplished by Jesus at the cross and the tomb. There's a salvation that's being applied by the Holy Spirit. And there's a salvation that we await. Paul was fixed on this final salvation. That's what he was working towards. And if we're working towards that final salvation and facing straight ahead to Jesus, we shall be in line, we shall be keeping step with the Spirit. And we shall find that God is working in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. One thing I do. I hope that will be helpful uh, for us.